Take charge of your thoughts. Take charge of your life. Psychologist, author, speaker, musician, former professor, and the host of Love and Life, Dr. Karen Anderson Averill. Welcome to Love and Life. I'm Dr. Karen Anderson Averill. Today, we're taking a deep dive into a dating issue that doesn't affect everyone, but if it affects you, it affects everything. We're talking about dating while having a chronic illness. Joining me is Jacqueline Raposo. Jacqueline is an interviewer, writer, and podcast producer. She explores the fascinating lives of humans across food, lifestyle, illness, wellness, entrepreneurship, travel, and the arts. For two years, Jacqueline produced and co-hosted Love Bites Radio on Heritage Radio Network, exploring how humans can better love one another and themselves. Jacqueline has lived with chronic illness since childhood. She's written essays and articles crossing illness and wellness, and these have been published in Cosmopolitan, Bust, Elle, The Lonely Hour, The Reset, Medium, and others. Jacqueline recently published her first book, The Me Without, a year exploring habit, healing, and happiness. It's a memoir cross-case study about challenging habit with interviews with super smart professionals, and it helps explain why her inner life changed so dramatically from a real-life experiment. Jacqueline, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I was really excited when we connected because you are bringing something to this dating relationship space that I talk about a lot and my listeners are very concerned about. But you bring another element because you are dating with a chronic illness. And that is something that I've had listeners reach out to me and say, hey, I like your message and your philosophy, but I have this other thing going on. So when we connected, I was really excited to have you share your experience and again, share your the tools that help you. And, and I'm sure it hasn't been easy. So with that being said, can you give the listeners a little bit about your illness and then how it's interacted with your dating and your background and all that sort of stuff? Sure. So... I'll give you the diagnoses that I have now. And I did not know a couple of years ago when I had my dating podcast and when I was single and had been single for a long time that I had these and they were not at the severity that I had now. But this is sort of the sphere of chronic illness that I've been working with for the last number of years as my dating life has been sort of pretty hot and heavy. Um, So my chronic illness world starts with post-treatment Lyme disease syndrome. That's PTLDS. And that started with an infection that I first got when I was 12. So that's 25 years ago now. Um, I got Lyme disease after being sick for over a year. It was diagnosed with a rheumatologist. Um, that's, it's an inflammatory illness. So it affects both the joints and the muscles with pain and heavy, heavy fatigue and also neurological symptoms, which developed primarily the second time I was treated for it in college. So that was a lot of brain fog and headaches and anxiety and things like that. So I was treated again in college for Lyme disease uh, with a second doctor, an infectious disease doctor. So I had Lyme disease diagnosed a second time in college. And post-treatment Lyme disease syndrome is when 30% of patients who are diagnosed with late-stage Lyme have these sort of symptoms after the infection has sort of been cleared away. There's a lot of things about Lyme disease that we don't know about, and then we don't know why up to 30% of patients still have these lingering symptoms. So that's sort of the basis of my chronic illness. But from that, I also have fibromyalgia, which is related to the way that the brain understands musculoskeletal pain. I got diagnosed with celiac disease a few years ago, which is an autoimmune disease. I've been off gluten since I was younger, Um, primarily just to help with the inflammation in my body. But then a few years ago, did get diagnosed with celiac. And so that's where if you eat, you know, wheat or rye or barley, 
the, the immune system sort of goes into attack and specifically here attacks the small intestines where not only do you digest food, but you also absorb nutrients. So if you have immune issues, you're not getting your vitamins and your minerals and things like that just to sort of help you stay healthy. Hmm. Um, and then I, about 10 years ago, got diagnosed with uh, myalgic encephalomyelitis, which most people here offhandedly referred to as chronic fatigue syndrome, or now they're trying to say more uh, often post-exertion malaise syndrome. So I've had two doctors over the past 10 years diagnose me with that. And then um, last fall, I specifically started working with an infectious disease specialist, one of the few in the country who specifically works with what we refer to as MECFS, so myalgic encephalomyelitis, chronic fatigue syndrome, MECFS patients. Um, she's way ahead in the field. She's doing some really wonderful studies in that. Um, and so MECFS works with dysfunctions of their neurological, the immune, the endocrine, and the energy metabolizing system. So without getting into too much detail about all of that, um, it's, she's basically helping me figure out why some of the diet and lifestyle changes I've made throughout my life, eating whole healthy foods, watching my stress levels, having a positive outlook, uh, you know, moving my body, all of the things that we're generally told to do to be healthy people, why they have not helped and, and maintained and gotten me healthy with these sort of mm. chronic illnesses. And that includes diagnosis for postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, which is a circulatory disorder related to blood pressure and heart rate that I didn't know that I had had, um, which also for me includes low blood volume and a very low uh, resting blood pressure or hypotension. And there's some other things that I've been working through figuring out with her. Um, immune illnesses, autoimmune illnesses. Um, you age with them. And they sort of wear down these systems in your body. It's, it's, they're not caught and dry necessarily. They affect bodies very differently. They sometimes sound scarier than they are. They're sometimes scarier than they sound. Uh, but that's the world that I move in now. And it's harsher physically than it was a few years ago when I was single and out on the dating scene. Um, but I'd, stay, I'd say I still have a pretty good, happy, wonderful life. It's pretty remarkable when you list, I mean, and I was writing them down in black and white. Here they are. That's a lot. And just because I've read your book, and we're going to talk about that in another episode, but it bears mentioning here. It's remarkable to me that in the midst of having so much, this is just, to me, I conceptualize this as just loss. It's just loss in this realm of life. You can't trust your body. You can't, you can't rely on your body. You can't trust your mind because of brain fog. There's so much loss, and yet you decide you're going to go a year giving up more things. <laughs> yeah, I, it, I know we're going to talk about this in another episode, but I will say that I had to make the choice to go without other things and to reclaim I, ha I had to do that in order to reclaim the things I could control. I think chronic illness takes so much from you. It is so hard as, as a podcast host and as a journalist and as someone who moves in a community of people who are chronically ill and disabled. It is hard. It is physically painful. It is emotionally painful. It challenges your relationships and your sense of self-worth. And so... I, I think it's very important to me and I, and I try to encourage in others reclaiming the power over anything you can, which starts with your thoughts and your outlook. Yeah. <laughs> and, and as you know, from the theme of my podcast, I am all about that. Exactly. That being said, I do admire that you take that position. And it was very clear, like I said, from the book that you deal with and you are sustaining on a daily basis physical challenges, mental challenges that most of us can't even fathom, and yet you still have a very positive outlook, which is, again, I'm just over here clapping my hands and <laughs> just really admiring that. Thank it's you. Just, yeah, really. So let's talk a little bit about your dating journey. And I know from a little bit about your past that you were in a very long-term relationship. And I would imagine, and I think you said it was about 10 years, yeah. I would imagine that would be one thing. And then that person, you kind of are growing up together and he understands 
your physical realities and it becomes such a part of your relationship that it probably gets in, in some ways, at least in the relationship side of things, it gets a bit fluid, which is nice. And so there would be an additional, people have a hard time. I mean, all of us have a hard time leaving a 10 year relationship. There's so much of yourself you've built into that. But on top of that, you have, okay, but he understood and got what I deal with. Will someone else? Exactly. I'm sure it was extra scary to step out of that. Exactly. Um, yeah. And for a 10-year relationship, we had gone through so much together in both of our lives. We went from college through our 20s together. And so it felt reciprocal in the caregiving, too. Mm. So when we ended, it was the first time. It was actually presented to me by others that, first of all, it might be a thing for someone new to have to mm. accept the idea that I had a chronic illness. It was, I don't remember exactly even who said it, but it was like, well, you'll either find someone who will accept the idea of your chronic illness or you won't <laughs> as if maybe I wouldn't find like, oh, Yeah. And so that's an option too. <laughs> yeah. And I was sort of like, wow, maybe guys just won't want to date someone with a chronic illness. I had never really thought that that could be such a bad, you know, a thing that would take me off a list, you know? Right. And then yeah. secondarily, it was suggested to me that maybe I should specifically look to date people other people with illnesses as if that would put me, you know, higher up in a, in a pool or something, or mm. that would make it more acceptable that I should be seeking out other people with illnesses, which to me also seemed pretty crass. Um, but it was, yeah. that was sort of a, an introduction yeah. into going back into dating, which neither of those things in my, in my first couple of years out were applicable at all but that was sort of my like hey you're back on the scene right. here's a reality you know mic drop for you <laughs> I was like oh all right <laughs> great <laughs> well I love that initially it had never crossed your mind which I think is great because that's to me it seems that there was a part of you a big part obviously that yes this is what I manage but no I've never thought of it as something that is something that someone else would say, no way, cannot handle that. So it, I love that. And then on the flip side, it's interesting that you then had to kind of grapple with, oh, wait, but maybe this is something that other people would just not be interested in having an, as part of a relationship. Yeah, I think both of those things are true at the same time. The first is that part of the, I guess, the good thing about getting sick so young is that mm -hmm. It, it, my illness has been a part of who I am um, throughout my life, and I don't let it be the first thing about who I am, my personality. Mm -hmm. I don't identify that as the defining force of my life. But I also have had points of health where it has been way down on, mm -hmm. you know, on the priority of my time, of my focus. So I have had points of my life where my health has been relatively good, and then it just sort of drops down again. But also, I got sick long before the internet and social media where we have these sort of online communities that we can instantly reach for or information that we right. can instantly reach for. I think we are a lot more about identifying and classifying ourselves now in these ways and, and reaching for communities that with definitions in some ways than we used to be. So I didn't have mm -hmm. support groups. I didn't have to put my personality into a bio in, in all these right. different ways when I was younger. And so it was just sort of a part of who I am and not, you know, a defining factor um, in that way. So that was part of, that was part of not letting it be always at top of my mind as far as, oh, this is who I am. I am a sick person. Um, right. But then yes, the practicality of, oh, right. I can't do all of the things that you know, potential partners are going to want to do that did completely come to the surface when I started dating mm -hmm. regularly, especially as I didn't, you know, meet my soulmate like right out of the gate. And so I started right. dating and kept dating and kept dating. And the longer I was dating and the, and again, the sicker I kept getting, the harder that got and the more I actually had to learn and talk to other people. And then as I became a podcast host, officially started sort of researching and asking questions to navigate the specific angle of my dating life. Let's connect on social. 
I'm most active on Instagram at Dr. Karen. That's D-R-K-A-R-I-N. On Twitter, I'm at Dr. Karen Anderson. Live tweet with me when I watch my favorite shows, Will and Grace, my brand new fave, God Friended Me, and of course, all shows Bachelor Nation. Join me on Facebook where I'm stepping up my Facebook Live game. I'm at Dr. Karen Anderson Abril. So again, I'm thinking of just stepping out of 10 years. And like you said, these were 10 very formative years. You really hadn't known adult life without your ex. And then you step out into adult life without your ex. And like you said, the landscape has changed. Now we've got online, we've got apps. And so it sounds like not only was it just developmentally a big transition to become an independent adult for the first time, really, because with that kind of relationship, we there's a part of us, again, we've been talking about identity. And your identity was certainly tied to that. It's just natural when you're in a relationship for 10 years. So what sorts of, what was that experience? And then, of course, weaving in the, that experience as someone with the conditions that you've talked about. Well, first, it was thrilling in a way. Yeah. As much as I was mourning my relationship, um, you know, and also I had moved at that time from New York City to Cincinnati. So I had a, a refresh. I had just come out a huge period of a drop in my illness where I had been very, very sick for a year and a half, two years or so. And so I was feeling better health. I moved away from home for a job for a period. And so there was a lot of reclaiming who I wanted to be or a new me or figuring it out. There was a lot of sort of self-discovery happening and there was also match.com, you know, or OkCupid or whichever one I was using at the time. And the possibility of, I think for all of us, when we're dating, especially, you know, for the first time again, or, or just starting out, there's, you know, who could I be, you know, on my own or with this, or with a new person, I think for anybody, it's like, what, we sort of project maybe on other people, you know, who the life that we could have. And so I think I I was trying to do a lot of that and I did have better health at the time, you know, that I could sort of hide some things about my illness. You know, I was, I was very mobile, very active. I had a very physical job. And so my, the illness that I sort of had to be wary of was not, forward at the surface. Um, Mm -hmm. so if I was going to just go on a couple of dates with someone, it was more just about timing so that Mm -hmm. I had the energy, um, or going to restaurants because my diet is very specific. You know, those first date sort of things were to be like, okay, let's just make sure if we're going out to dinner that I subtly get us to a restaurant that I know I can eat food at. And then if, conversations come up about the menu, why we can't share this appetizer or why, you know, we can't, you know, why I can't eat this. I'll either just be honest about like, I can't eat this dish because I have food sensitivities, which a lot of people do. So I can sort of play that off or I can be a picky eater about something. I can sort of just sort of pass the buck a little bit Mm -hmm. um, until I decide whether something is serious enough in order to, mm-hmm. to get in. But a lot of times, like in the early dating, you're not getting serious enough to a point with someone. But then after a while I did date, I did start dating someone for, and we did for about six months. And that was a very, both with just figuring out again, who I could be after having been out of this long relationship. It was, it was a transitional intentionally transitional relationship of learning how to, how to have affection for someone and figuring out what a different type of affection from someone could be and trusting someone and having fun. This gentleman who I dated was very light and happy and kind. And as far as my illness, because he did see me more tired, he did see me in pain, but he never had to see any tinge of darkness to that too. My illness was never at the point where I was never serious enough about him. And so never was going to open up in vulnerability to let it get to that darkness with him too. So there was a lot of, as far as how much I'm going to share with that person, it was still pretty, it was still pretty controlled. It wasn't until I moved back to New York and was looking to date more seriously 
that these questions of how my illness plays into my identity and the possible future with someone that I had to really start thinking about having honest conversations and presenting myself forward. To determine at what point you share that there's no, okay, at date three, <laughs> after the entree and before dessert is what I'm going to tell someone. Because I get that question a lot as a psychologist. People, if they have a diagnosis in the psychological realm, they might say, well, do I need to tell someone that I've been diagnosed with bipolar in the first date? And I'm one, I kind of go with your approach when people ask me what I think makes sense is that some information it's not relevant, especially early on when you have no idea if this is even going to make it to date three or four or six. And so it seems like you've been over the last several years figuring out a way to kind of determine based on your, your expectation of the relationship. But then again, that's uncertain as well. Yeah, so. that is um, that the one to tell. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Just as you said, it's sort of, it's the question that every Every chat room, every Facebook feed, every I get emailed that question all the time from people. When do I tell the person I'm dating about this illness that I have? And there is no right answer to that. With all of the dates that I've gone on, and also I'm very Googleable at this point. Being a podcast host, I've written essays about this. I've written articles about chronic illness. And so if somebody knows my name and they're going out on a date with me, they can Google it and they might even find an essay on Cosmopolitan that I wrote called How I Learned to Date with a Chronic Illness. And so there it is. And so before our first date, they're going <laughs> to know. Alert. Exactly. So it's actually, it was always like quite wonderful to me if I went on a date and someone hadn't done that. Like that was always like, oh, thank you. On the flip side, sometimes if they had, that at least took the pressure off. But mm -hmm. if, you know, but otherwise... That is going to, how someone takes it is going to depend on who they are and their, their mental, emotional fortitude, everything that's brought them as a human being to that moment, how they right. feel about you, how you feel about them. But I feel like, yeah, I feel like the potential for how you're going to be as a couple is what is going to make the moment right or not. You know, if on a first date, the conversation is going well and that person is sharing vulnerable things with you mm -hmm. about their something that they are nervous about or something that they a trial that they have gone through or something they struggle with that they carry through their daily life then maybe that's the right moment um to share your experience with chronic illness that i did once with a gentleman i dated for a while and we both shared on the first date those struggles and immediately we felt sort of a sh you know we had a shared strength that we had both struggled through something very hard that we carry with us daily that we wanted to be out on the table. And that sort of brought us together from that first date. And we dated for a while until, until it wasn't, until it was clear that we weren't, you know, right for each other for other reasons. Right. With a different gentleman, I did not tell him until I think six weeks in after we had had many wonderful dates. And I was so nervous by the time I told him. And again, it was when he shared with me a very vulnerable thing about his family and his past. And, and he was, gave me this gift of this, this vulnerable memory. And I was, and I knew in my heart, I was like, it's not fair to not trust him with this part of me anymore. Mm -hmm. And I shared with him and that was the right moment after a good six weeks when he, I'd felt so sick on some dates with him. So, so sick. And I hadn't told him because I still wanted to see what it would be like to date, to go on these different types of dates with him in my body without him knowing, just seeing, just him being who he was without him taking care of me or without him worrying or without him questioning or without me feeling like he was acting different with me or just without the fear of him breaking up with me. Cause I still wanted to get to know him, you know? Yeah. So like, so it was six weeks with him. Um, so it really, in my opinion, it's about when you want to, it's not about owing the, the other person an answer or it being, you know, technically right or wrong. It's not a guilty secret. You know, it's not, it's just about your comfort level and when you feel like it's a trusted moment to share this part of you. So as you're talking, I'm wondering if there are times when it's hard to suss out 
when a relationship ends, do you ever have that question? Well, it seems like this is the reason it ended, but maybe it was my illness. Or is that something that comes to mind? Or And I would imagine other people reaching out to you might have that question as well. And how do you, how do you just navigate your way around that question? All the time. Um, it is, it's a hard heart part to navigate. Um, there have been times that I was flat out. I won't say broken up with cause they weren't long relationships comparatively, but there were times that dating someone just a few times or for a couple weeks, things ended very clearly because of limitations from my illness. Um, whether I was told, well, I really want to date someone who can go to the gym with me. That was one. Another was not even because of where I was physically at the time, but because of where the gentleman's fears were for the future. He had had experience mm -hmm. with a parent who had been disabled in an accident and he saw his, his mother caring for the father until the father passed away. And so he was afraid of where his responsibilities could go in the future and that it was such a far fear, which, yeah. you know, was valid as far as, you know, the, what, what he was still carrying with him, but it almost had nothing to do with me, but that, you know, mm -hmm. that those conversations just kept sort of coming up about how sick I could get, how sick I could get, which I don't think mm -hmm. he would have been having with someone without illness right. who could also get sick or disabled in the future. Absolutely. Um, and then there are things that between, you know, friends I have in the community or people I've interviewed come up for very practical purposes. If you can't have children, that is mm -hmm. a reason why relationships end. I can't have children. I'm very specific about not being able to have children and not wanting them from the beginning. But that is a gray area for a lot of people, for both men and women with chronic illness about, you know, if you can't have children physically, well, maybe what about you know, adopting children, or what if you want children, but because of your illness, you're going to have to have a sort of a different lifestyle as a family. You're going to have to have extra care. You're going to have to be close to your relatives to have more support. You know, I think it's hard sometimes for people without illness to imagine a, an alternative lifestyle. I don't necessarily like saying alternative because when you have an illness, sort of everything is alternative life doesn't have the norms, I guess that some people think life should have, but you know, family is one of them. What could a family life look like? That's just a little bit outside of the box. Let's say, um, sex is a big thing that comes up for people. Bodies with chronic illness have a lot of determining factors that change what sex could be from one day to the next. Um, and whether it's an actual physical hiccup from, you know, mm -hmm. that changes or whether it's just even an emotional relationship hiccup between two people. If it's a fear from the person who doesn't have chronic illness about talking about sex or connecting through sex, there's all these sort of reasons why illness makes a relationship or a breakup just different. Um, and sometimes it is flat out, you know, for someone and has been for me and for other people, like I want to do more things than you can do in your body. And it hurts because illness is not a character flaw mm -hmm. and it's not a choice. And while mm -hmm. most people I know feel like, yes, it has given us a, a strength that we wouldn't have otherwise. And it has taught us a lot about ourselves and it, you know, it shows us this emotional and an intellectual side of ourselves that we wouldn't have been forced to explore. Otherwise, most of us would never choose our illness. It's painful and it takes so much from our, from our relationships and our jobs and our, just our time. And so it's not a choice. And this is not a choice that we would make, but all of a sudden these people were dating, they just get to make it very quickly and walk away. Mm. And so just having some fortitude against that moment, especially, you know, I dated, I don't know how many men I dated before I met my partner, <laughs> especially during my podcast day, my, you know, my podcast hosting days, um, yeah. figuring out where that line was going to be for a guy was very, always very scary. Um, when was he going to find his line where my illness was too much? Right. I think there's a lot of fear for people with chronic illnesses. Where is that line going to be? And, and being strong enough to either not 
to not be afraid of that line because you have enough inner strength and to either navigate the person to around the line or to just not worry about to let that to let that line be almost your marker for whether or not you want that person in your life all of that just it's part of the the emotional work of having the illness but it does sting every even no matter how strong you are it stings every time at least for me it It did yeah it's just yeah it has yeah i mean i'm just sitting here thinking about how much as women in particular we Try to do, we try to be very mindful of the fact that sometimes when we want a relationship and we want to be in this relationship and we want to stay in this relationship, we can find ourselves doing some backbends and somersaults and cajoling so that we can be what this person wants us to be. And of course, then we say, stop it. <laughs> we are not, this is not a hundred years ago. We are going to be fully authentic in this relationship. And it's a struggle in any context, I think, really, yes. because we we are socialized to want to be in relationships, and that's biological as well. But so women struggle with that anyway. But now I'm thinking about your perspective and others with chronic illnesses, then going, okay, should I play it down right now so he'll stick around? Again, I'm, I'm fearful of that line. Is that line going to happen next week uh, if he realizes exactly how debilitating this can be at times? And then that tension, as you're saying, or maybe I just go, I got to be me. And if that line shows up, then he's weeding himself out, which is good in a way. But like you said, it still stings. It's just, it's a lot to juggle. Yeah, because the reality is that the illness isn't going anywhere. I mean, chronic illness, it's chronic, you know, like, I I mean, I still have hope that my illness is going to get better and and I'm working hard to make that happen, obviously. Um, And and all of us are, you know, nobody's just sitting in acceptance, Mm -hmm. but, um, but it's going to, it's here, like it is the constant. And so if that, if that is the case, then obviously you want the person to be able to work with you and your life and all the other things around it, all the good things about your life and all the other things that you bring to the table. And so, yeah, what is that line and how do we feel about it versus, you know, do you want that person to come over your line to, to you, you know, obviously. <laughs> but the, the problem too is that the longer you go dating somebody who might find that line and run away, it all comes back to physically having an effect on your body too for especially I mean I can only speak for people with similar conditions to mine but living is tiring you know anything I do is tiring talking is tiring going to a restaurant leaving my space especially new people getting to know people having conversations going in loud places putting your all like feeling heightened emotions for good or for bad. Like they have physical effects on our body. And so what I hear from people a lot is that when they have put themselves out there and then they get crushed again for this particular reason, it feels like such a waste of the very limited physical energy that they have already. They sort of wish that they'd rather put it towards the things that already are bringing them joy and happiness because we have, we just have less than other people. We have less hours in the day for the things that we want to do. We have less physical energy. We have, you know, less good wiggle room. You know, we, it, being sick takes up time. It takes up time. It takes up energy and it's physically painful. And so how much of it do we want to spend on risking something with someone new mm-hmm. if the chances are that it's not going to work out. So I know a lot of people who just don't date, you know, or who won't date for years. And then I'll be like, Oh, I'm, I'm thinking I want to start dating again and we'll try. And after the two or three that don't work, they just stop again because there's just so many other things we would rather do with our limited time and energy than put it all in that, <laughs> all in that pool. Um, it's a conundrum. It makes sense. Yeah. This quarter, Love and Life lends a hand to 11th Candle Company. All proceeds from the sale of my book, Single is the New Black, Don't Wear White Till It's Right, will go to 11th Candle Company's Legacy Foundation. To hear more about the incredible work Amber Runyon is doing to help women escape sex trafficking, please take a listen to my podcast interview with her. It's episode 42, How Does a Candle Company Combat Human Trafficking? 11th Candle Company. 
Check them out at 11thcandleco.com and be sure to use promo code TAKECHARGE to receive 20% off your entire purchase. I want to ask you some kind of brass tacks questions, but before we get to that, you do not sound bitter. And I would think you'd have every reason to be bitter. So how have you been able to not go down that road? Um, wow. Huh. I don't know if I've ever flat out thought about that before. I think in general, well, I guess it's two-sided that first of all, life is hard for everyone. And... I think if there's one thing that chronic illness has taught me more than anything, it's that life is hard for everyone and we don't know what's happening underneath the surface of someone's body. And so, yes, this is what's happening in mine and my life is very hard because of this across the board. Um, Like I said, relationships, job, finance, um, everything about life is harder because of having a chronic illness. But I don't remember how long ago it was that I realized like, oh, well, if, if this is happening in my body and nobody can see it because largely my illness is invisible, then I have no idea what's happening behind other people's bodies too. Um, I think life is hard for a lot of people. And so as much as I could be bitter about all of the years that, you know, I, I felt hurt by or extra hurt by this sort of added layer, um, to my dating life, to my dating rejection. Um, other people have broken hearts for various reasons. Um, also I was, I was loved deeply in my 10 year relationship. And that is a, that is a gift that other people have, have not gotten. So I had been deeply loved. I had felt that. And that is a gift. Mm. Um, that I very much recognize. And I have a lot of other love in my life. That's part of it too. I have, I am close with my family. I've got a couple very close friends who I feel supported by. Um, I joke that I have two wives and two husbands because I have two girlfriends (laughs) who I've known for a very long time. And when they got married, their husbands jokingly called me their second wife, you know, because (laughs) they're, you know, because I'm that close with their, with their wives and they know that I'm single and they know that I had been looking and they, and they know about my health conditions. And so these, my two best friends and their husbands had sort of taken me on as a, mm. as a third spouse, you know, and, and they take care of me and we take care of each other. And so I think just focusing on how relationships and love can come from all of these different places, like that helps me feel safe and reminds me that I am loved and I can give love to whoever I want. So I think that's part of, I think, I think that's sort of the two sides that life is hard for everyone. And we don't know what other people are dealing with, including the men who are rejecting us. Um, Mm. And that love can come from everywhere and I can give it, giving it helps me. And also that, you know, I can get it from other people. It doesn't have to be romantic love. Yeah, thank you for that. It's powerful, and I think it generalizes to a lot of other conditions and circumstances. So I think it's thank you. really an important word for all of us to to contemplate. <sighs> and it, yeah. and I think all this stuff takes work. You know, it's hard. Mm. Like, and I and I try to and I try across the board to tell people that I don't think that this stuff it doesn't come easy. I think we all have to work at it. Um, Cause like I said, like life is hard and <laughs> love is hard. You know, we, we have to, we have to try, um, you know, we have to love each other and love ourselves. And the, those are active things we have to do. Mm-hmm. Active indeed. It's not passive. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You're right. And it starts from within. Like you said, it starts from, it just sounds like you looked to, and, and this is of course, you know, the research on gratitude and happiness and how they're correlated always. And so looking for those other realms of life where you feel deep love while you were still searching for that in a romantic partner. And that's, that's powerful. And even though when I say it, it sounds too simplistic to be powerful, but no, it it really is. I think it it bears underscoring. Yeah. And I agree that it sounds simplistic, which is why it's hard to sort of relate to people, but it's like, no, it's not because you have to do it. 
You have to do it and you have to do it all the time. And in your darkest moments, you have to find it and you have to do it. (laughs) You know, like it's hard. It is hard. It's not easy. It's hard. Let's talk a little bit, like I said, about some questions that you probably get a lot that I think my listeners could benefit from. So things like creating a bio for an online dating profile. Do you, or did you, when you were out on the scene, did you give a nod to, or just in black and white say that you had chronic illness or how did you, how did you go about that? I tried a couple times to put things about chronic illness in, and then I quickly took them out because it just didn't feel fun in a dating profile to just put that out there. Um, and so instead what I would do is put, um, more things that I wanted to help gentlemen sort of understand the world that I wanted to move in. So I would just put more, um, quiet, introverted, nerdy aspects of my interests sort of into Mm -hmm. my profile. So things like books and movies and museums. Um, And if I was going to put references to music, they were going to be more of the sort of independent artists that I've listened to that I go out and see in New York Um, I didn't have any photos on my profile that were, you know, big adventure outdoor shots of me on vacation, really. Or if they were, they were going to be sort of very quiet walking on a beach shots if I had like something like that. So I just sort Mm -hmm. of tried to paint a picture um, of me as sort of a quieter person. You know, there'd be something in me with my dog and with my dog all the time. Um, I focused on the fact more that I am, you know, a freelance writer who works from home rather than, you know, a podcast host or, you know, a dating. I, I don't even remember if I'd have that I was a dating podcast host specifically, because I think that sort of right. throw guys off, but you know, like the, I, I did have like a shot of me in the studio Um, Mm -hmm. but I made it clear that, you know, like I was a podcast host, not a singer, because that would sort of confuse guys. So I would just sort of make it more specific of these are the kind of things that I like, um, to just attract a quieter sort of guy uh, in that way. And then on the flip side, when I was looking at profiles, as much as who knows, you know, what, who there's always, you know, diamonds in the rough, but I would also just not match myself with anyone who I could tell was, very adventurous and outdoorsy who all of their photos were on these vacations, you know, very far away because I can't travel, you know, at the drop of a hat. I can't be very spontaneous. Anybody who is at, you know, outdoor concerts or hiking every weekend or going, you know, to, to amusement parks, anything that was physically out of my ease zone, I just wouldn't match with them. Um, you know, I look for people again with more introverted tendencies to just sort of at least put us on a more even playing field. Yeah. And again, I was just thinking, because I love to talk about stories and experience and theory, but I also know that sometimes when someone listens to a podcast like this, they're like, I need a couple to do's. (laughs) I need a couple. So I think that's a really, really wise way of looking at how you present yourself in the bio and through the photos. And then also what you look for. And again, Of course, it's not foolproof because maybe there's an active person who would have been totally fine with your realities. But at the same time, it's you're trying to maybe kind of cut someone off at the past if it's just going to be prove hurtful. Exactly. Later on. Yeah. Yeah. And then even you know, adding things like if you if if you like talking on the phone, you know, like adding things like that. You know, adding like, Mm -hmm. like using just sort of buzzy words like quiet and old school and you know just anything that sort of helps to relay that you know you're more a stay at home or you know quiet nights mm-hmm. in you know all that kind of stuff um just to sort of allude to <laughs> a yeah. lifestyle because mm-hmm. there are people who do not have illness who do not want to be going out you know and and staying out late and clubbing and restaurant hopping all the time, you know, that is a very valid lifestyle that a lot of people don't want. So it's just finding, finding people who don't mind, you know, being, you know, a stay at home, whatever. So. Yeah. Do you find in your interactions with people in the community 
that there are any gender differences that that people express that it's different to date with folks with chronic illness that are male versus female? I mean, is there anything out there that would be something to note? Yeah, I speak with mostly women. And so for years, I was getting a lot of the parenting talk from women who either could not have children or whose illnesses were affecting their sex lives. And so that was sort of a problem with, you know, the early stages of dating as far as when can we start being sexually active um, or the mothering thing, the idea of I can't have children or I can have children, but I don't know how much, you know, energy I'm going to have or having children will sort of exacerbate my illness. So I think for women, that is a the biggest problem is the idea of motherhood or parenthood and finding a partner who, you know, you'd be surprised at how many men, especially, you know, for women of an age dating men who are slightly older when men are ready for that. At least for me, that was definitely true. I was in my early thirties dating men in their late thirties and forties who are really ready to have families. Mm -hmm. So that was a big problem. Um, and then I think also, for women, it, it is more of a problem when women who can't drink alcohol because of their illness for dating men, that there is a slight difference with the acceptability level um, there that men just a little bit more want to be able to go out to, to bars and drink versus, you know, a guy who doesn't drink a woman. Like that's, that's not quite as much, but that I've just sort of heard being a problem for women that not being able to go out and drink sort of bothers guys. But mm. then it was brought up to me sort of recently through a friend, a male friend who has uh, myalgic encephalitis that having an illness um, for men sort of has the, the masculinity question. And he wasn't, mm. he was sort of worried about that, you know, and it had sort of asked me about that and made me, you know, and made me wonder about that through line for men you know, he said, do, do women want a man who is physically strong and does illness play, mm -hmm. a, play a question in that? And, and mm -hmm. had that had me thinking about that, which is interesting to me because as a woman, I want emotional strength in a man more than anything. Mm -hmm. um, and also I think obviously physical strength and strength in general, again, I, all of these things are in the eye of, of, the, of the beholder and you know, being attracted to someone in general, but that was something I hadn't thought before until he said that. I was like, oh, that must be, yeah, I could see that being harder for men. The idea that men have to be physically strong, these strong mm -hmm. caretakers, um, you know, we're moving away from men having to be necessarily the sole breadwinners and the ones that make, you know, more money than women or like in this country, at least we're, you know, we're trying to shift that a little bit, but the idea that men should be strong. So is that sort of, you know, a, a tough factor for women. Um, he was sort of sure. struggling with that. Yeah. So yeah. those are, those are the biggest differences that I've sort of noted from, from people who speak with me. Yeah. And I think it's interesting, like you said, you wouldn't have necessarily thought of all of those just different ramifications based on gender and those expectations. And of course, these norms are changing, but they aren't always changing as much as we kind of think. Yeah. They're changing maybe <laughs> on the surface, but there is all this stuff that's at work that we still sometimes have to kind of question, even within ourselves. Exactly. Thinking, yeah. We just need to check oh. ourselves a little bit. Like, oh, why right. do I, why is that sort of <laughs> jumping to the top of my head? Yeah. <laughs> right. So you mentioned that you wrote an article that was really, it really resonated with a lot of people. It was called How I Learned to Date with a Chronic Illness. But now you look at this as how I stay in love with my chronic illness. Can you explain kind of yeah, as you move from learning to deal with it to <laughs> falling in love with it? And maybe that's also in part as you've moved from the dating scene to now you're in a committed relationship or is that separate or? Yeah, no, I, um, so I had a dating radio show for two years. And then during that time I did this project, you know, that I ended up writing a book about called the me without. And as that was finishing, we sort of put the podcast on hold and all of this stuff was happening and my emotional life was transforming. And my dating life at the time, I decided just to sort of pause it because basically as I was sort of going through this 
big, beautiful emotional transformation in my life. I was becoming a more grounded person. I was becoming a stronger person. And I decided for various reasons to stop dating almost because I was feeling stronger. You know, I, I'd been tired of being rejected because of my illness. I was not meeting the right kind of guys necessarily. I'd been on the apps for years. <laughs> I had been just sort of putting out, like I said, like I was putting all like the energy that was dwindling. I was getting sicker too. So I was putting my dwindling energy so much into my dating life and it wasn't getting me sort of where I wanted as I was, you know, putting my time instead into things that were making me happier, you know, and I was becoming just sort of a happier, stronger person. And so I'd stopped dating and started writing this book and then offline, completely away from the podcast world, I met the guy who I've now been dating for over a year and a half. Um, we met through work. We met, you know, in person through a, through a friend at an event. And it just sort of happened the way things sometimes sporadically happen in life. Um, and it was funny because I had interviewed so many women on my radio show about just sort of the, the chaos of when you meet the right person and how there really is no logic to it. And sometimes pieces just come together. And I really do feel like that's just how I met my partner. It was just, I was, <laughs> I was in a good emotional place. Mm -hmm. We we were in the same physical space. <laughs> um, and that's why, and I, if I had met him a year before, I would not have been in the right emotional place to be the person who was right for him. Um, mm -hmm. And so that is just, I have no advice <laughs> after being a radio host for two years. I still have no advice about how to, how to get the, how to get the guy, you know, um, as a person with chronic illness, I have no advice about how to get the right guy for you with chronic illness. Um, but my, my boyfriend, he's does not have experience dating someone with chronic illness. He is very healthy. He is very strong. He is a pastry chef who works seven days a week. Um, unless I can pull him away from work and it is the strongest relationship I've ever been in, but it's still being someone whose chronic illness is far worse than it was. All those things that I listed at the top of the show are if they were, you know, in my dating life, when I was on all the apps dating all the time, if they were a nuisance level four, they're now a nuisance level eight. Um, mm -hmm. I am far more disabled than I was then. I, my, I'm far more out of the working world and, you know, isolated than I was then yet I have this wonderful relationship, um, because that still takes work. Um, mm -hmm. it's still, it's so how I, so the idea of like how I stay in a relationship or how I stay in love with my chronic illness in that essay, I sort of spelled out like, well, here are sort of how I work through the P's and Q's of going on first dates or dating. And here's sort of the logic there are some, I won't say tricks, but there are some specific things that I do apply to figuring out how can I be the best partner, you know, to a wonderful person, even with an illness or a series of illnesses that are pretty bad right now. Right. Um, and I, and now I'm getting messages from other people in relationships with similar conditions to sort of share advice in this realm. Um, because it is very different figuring out, you know, navigating this world than it is, you know, in the, the first couple of months of a relationship, you know, a year in, it's very different. Right. What sorts of things feel supportive Again, so if someone now is also looking at you and saying, okay, well, she's in a relationship and it's the best she's ever had and her illness is, is pretty bad right now and yet it's working. It's work, but it's working. What sorts of things help it work? On my end, I think mm -hmm. this is actually for both of us because I did ask him for this show. I did actually ask him this question to get his insight. But I think for both of us, it's the remembering that I am a person without an illness too. Mm. And that there are two of us in this relationship. And so even though my relationship takes a lot of our attention, that first of all, I have authority and autonomy over again, my thoughts and my outlook. And so mm -hmm. I can choose to put aside as much as I can of my illness in order to be a girlfriend to my boyfriend. 
So if he, so if we are both having, so I'm, I'm going to feel sick every single day. I'm going to feel pain every single day. And I'm always going to have a conversation at the ready as to what just happened at my doctor's appointment or which symptoms have come and gone or how bad this, you know, this pattern was today. I can always talk to him about that, but I don't need to, if he's having a rough day or if he's celebrating something, I can put all of that aside and just, and, and celebrate him or talk to him. That is, that is a choice that I have. Like just because having an illness is dramatic and very present and sometimes very painful, I can even, I can choose to even keep my pain, not to hide it from him, but Mm -hmm. I can choose to have that be a relationship of with just me and my body. And I think that's been sometimes one of the most helpful things, even when my pain is really bad. If it's just, if it's me and my boyfriend and my pain is really bad, but it's not necessarily going to be more helpful to share that with him than it is for us to have a conversation that's about our lives together and mine and his, not mine and my body, then I can like keep my pain about, you know, with me and my body that, you know, I I know I'm getting a little hooey with this, with my, my words here, but my relationship with my pain can be, can stay inside my body and my heart. And I can have a conversation with my boyfriend that's about him or about us. You know, we can have a relationship there and so I think that's part of, that's a big part of it is, is honoring that we are something together, no matter what's happening in my body. And that sort of worked into what, when I asked him, what helps that I do? He said, the chair. And I was like, what do you mean the chair? And he said, because even though I spend most of my time in bed and he gets home late from work being a chef, I usually have a chair next to my bed ready for him with a glass of water, a beer next to it, his pajamas on it, some food ready so that we're even for a date night, if we're going to eat dinner, I will, I will eat dinner in bed and he's got his chair next to me and there's a candle and there, we still set up a date night so that my, mm. I take care of my needs first so that my body is comfortable. And then I take care of his. So we still are a couple together and my illness is almost, it's taken care of, but it's secondary. And I love the part about, because, and again, this generalizes to anything. There's only so much in this life we can control. And certainly you understand that to a degree that most people can't even comprehend. But you're trying to take control of what you can control. Yeah. And, and that's, that's where our power lies. And, and it's harder for you and the struggle is more difficult, but you're still trying to do that so that you can bring the version of you that you want to bring to the relationship. Now, some days I'm sure it's impossible and it just, the chronic illness wins, but those days that you can, it sounds like that's where you kind of flex a little bit and go, okay, despite this, I'm going to take charge here. Then I also wonder, just thinking as a relationship now, in your relationship, does he ever say, you don't need to manage this for me. I can handle what you have going on right now. Do you know, like almost you anticipating, let me just take care of this right now and him going, no, you don't need to manage it. Just because of those dynamics within a relationship. I'm curious, does he ever say that? Or is it more, that's okay, you take care of it in the way that you need to take care of it and I'll honor that today. (laughs) (laughs) He's, I mean, he's amazing. I don't know how, I honestly just, this is where like the stars and the the universe and the zoomy things, like, I don't know how I got so lucky with this guy. He is, he is, um, he is instinctively amazing with finding ways to help new ways to help me cope with some of my symptoms. And this is where sort of letting go of some of my autonomy. Like I've, I've Mm. also sort of had to let some walls down and been like, let Mm. him help you. Like he comes to me with ideas. He's actually brought some of the most helpful new tools into my space that, you know, sort of my stubbornness and my pride wants to be like, Nope, this is my illness. It's my responsibility. He did not choose this. You know, I don't want him to feel burdened down. And, and he sort of taught me about taking down some of those walls Um, uh, sometimes he will be firm with me about, no, you do not need to do that right now. Um, you know, with, with walking the dog, you know, he will walk the dog when he can tell I'm in too much pain or he will ask me how I am and he will see me sort of grit and smile because I don't want to tell him how much pain I am. And he will Mm -hmm. tell me not to lie to him, you know, like, so there are times that we do (laughs) have this. yeah. Yeah. So he's very, but then, but then there are also times when, 
I also want to be able to lie to him about it. And I have learned that the best way <laughs> I think with, with men I'm learning with my girlfriends, we talk about how sometimes the best way is to be very direct. Like I'm not a very direct person. Sometimes I, th- I assume people know, you know, I'm a big feeler and I assume people can mm-hmm. just understand my feelings and I'm learning to be very clear and direct. So there are some times that I will just flat out say like, I almost want to lie about this right now. I just want Mm. to not talk about how much pain I'm in. I don't want my illness to be the focus right now. I just want to be a normal person talking about this. And he'll understand Mm. what I mean because Mm -hmm. he knows that I'm not faking it and that I'm not hiding it from him. I just don't want it to be the focus. And there are times when my illness gets severe enough that there'll be a pattern of days or weeks where I'll feel like it's taking too much attention in our relationship. And I don't want it to do that. So we, I feel like we're, you know, it's been a year and a half. We're still learning, but I feel like there's, there's gotta be an ebb and flow. And I still, I still do worry about the line. Mm -hmm. I am, that's my fear. That's my baggage. And he still teaches me about, you know, letting go of that, but I still feel like it's a valid fear. Um, And so I, you know, I think there's a lot of us teaching each other back and forth um, about who needs to be firmer (laughs) in certain circumstances. Yeah. Well, it struck me what you're sharing is really obviously super profound for people in your community with the same challenges, but also there's a lot to learn for folks who aren't part of that community. As we wrap up, and I'm so excited to have you on again to talk about your book, but to wrap up this conversation, do you have any other sorts of of words of advice or wisdom? And I know it, it, from what from our conversation, I know that you're not one to try to tell people, this is how you do it. <laughs> and, and I don't like that either as a former therapist therapy really isn't about giving advice, although people sometimes think it is. It's really more about helping people understand, providing a context for people to understand what's the right choice for them. But when people do come to you, because you have walked a road that many people, maybe they've just been newly diagnosed and they think, oh my gosh, what does it look like for me? And I'm sure just your story and being so vulnerable and sharing, I'm sure it's quite powerful. So when people do ask you for a couple words of wisdom, what do you typically give them? In general, I love the idea that um, happiness, positivity, and optimism, that they are, like we've said, they are actionable ideas. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. And so along those lines, what has been most helpful for me and what I tell other people is to focus on learning new things in the direction you want your future to go or things that are going to be positive comforts and the dating world. When I was, you know, out there dating a lot and perpetually single, it was reading books or listening to podcasts that were sort of fortifying. So, you know, on love bites radio, we interviewed Sarah Eckle who wrote a book 27. Yeah. I, it's not you 27 wrong reasons why you're still single. I love that um, book. Yeah. It's a great book. Um, you know, and other authors, you know, who talked about another mostly, you know, female authors who talked about, you know, periods of singledom in their lives. Some of them were academics, some of them were memoirs. Those sort of made me feel part of a community of women and men through that time. And that felt very positive and fortifying. With chronic illness, there are, there are memoirs across the gamut. I generally choose ones that are, that are less about the struggles of chronic illness and more about the fortification, you know, the, the moving forward, the onward and upward. Um, I read them all, but I generally try to focus on things that are going to make me, you know, happier and, and feeling positive with the world. Um, and then even in, you know, everyday life, being sick is hard. I'm not a perpetually happy person. Um, I, I hit, when I hit lows, I hit very big emotional lows And I created a habit of this, of reminding myself in those moments, I have a choice right now with the next thing I do and the direction it sets me. And so I have just tried to surround myself with enough tools so that I can pick something that is going to shift my mindset or my mood. So whether it's, it's just exploring how many podcasts can I find that are going to fill my ears 
with different things. You know, I'm a bird watcher, so I've got a bunch of different bird watching and nature podcasts. And so whether it's putting on a CD of sounds of bird sounds in nature or listening to a new podcast, or there's so many podcasts about positive stories and, and good people doing good things in the world, mm-hmm. something like that. Or books. I went back to reading a lot of books from childhood, you know, Little Women and, and Little Princess and things like that. All these just magical stories. Anything in the moment to shift from this hurts and I'm sad to I have faith in the goodness of the world, mm-hmm. I think just puts us in a better place to meet, you know, for whoever we're going to meet, um, you know, the next date or the second date or the third date with someone, or if we're just going to be by ourselves and sick for another 24 or 48 hours, um, movies, television, the happier things we put in our brain. I just think that, that, that counts, you know, more and more. It does. Yeah, it really does. Absolutely. Um, thank you for sharing that. I think, like I said, powerful strategies for really any context and the psych research, of course, backs that up as well. So Jacqueline, where can, uh, if anyone wants to connect with you, where can they find you? I'm sure you're all over social media. I'm sure, can they still, they can probably still hear Love Bites. Yeah. Um, it's probably on iTunes and they can catch up on past episodes. Yeah. So Love Bites was on Heritage Radio Network and you can listen on iTunes and Stitcher or at heritageradionetwork.org. Um, my website is JacquelineRaposo.com and I am on Facebook as Jacqueline Raposo Writer and then on Twitter and mostly on Instagram as at Words Food Art. Great. And thank you so much for your time. It really means a lot. And I'm really excited to have you on again. But thank you so much. Thank really you enjoyed so much for having me. So for this week's love and life hack, I'll defer to Jacqueline and how she's created habits that help her stay happy in the midst of the ongoing challenges of chronic illness. And I created a habit of this, of reminding myself in those moments, I have a choice right now with the next thing I do and the direction it sets me. And so I have just tried to surround myself with enough tools so that I can pick something that is going to shift my mindset or my mood. Take charge of your thoughts, Take charge of your life. This is Dr. Karen Anderson Abril. Thanks so much for listening, for subscribing to the podcast, and for rating and reviewing episodes. All of that makes such a huge difference, and I really appreciate it. And until next time, make it a great week. Love and Life is produced by Tim May and hosts and executive producer, Dr. Karen Anderson Abril.